Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. One test down, one to go, and then the 2024 MotoGP season will begin. So who is heading to next week's two days of Qatar running feeling confident, and who needs a big test at Lucille to settle some nerves and solve some problems? This is the Race MotoGP podcast. I'm Matt Beer, and I've located Simon Patterson, who's actually in his house for what might be the last time for a little while, and the first time in about a month. He looks he looks genuinely delighted with that. That's lovely. And I've prized Val Horenci away from F1 launches for some MotoGP chat. We covered a lot of ground on last week's podcast after the opening test in Malaysia, but there were plenty more topics we wanted to get onto, and some of them have been further eliminated by what's happened at team launches this week, because teams have continued launching the bikes that we saw in Valencia and in Malaysia already, and they've brought them out in fancy launches, some with very new colours, some with exactly the same colours. So launch season is as, as puzzling as ever on that front. Uh, but one team that did actually hold its launch this week is also the centre of a bit of... Uh, not right... Yeah, I'm going to say right of confusion. I think I'm very confused about what KTM is intending to do with its 2025 lineup already. Uh, one of its quartet notably struggled at the test. We spent a lot of time talking about how great Pedro Acosta was at the first test, but his Tech 3 Gas Gas teammate, Augusto Fernandez, looked all at sea. Um, Val, Simon, we've said a lot of good things about Fernandez last year when he was the series sole rookie and doing very well under the radar, but he did not have a good, a good start to 2024, did he? And as much as KTM is making noises like it's not going to look outside its lineup, it's surely going to. Yeah, Fernandez's form in the Sabang test was very, very concerning and concerning throughout. And none of the explanations he, have offer- he has offered up are particularly good for allaying said concerns. We know he's a bit of a slow burn rider who takes a little bit to adapt. We saw at the start of last last season, his rookie season, that he basically needed the entire testing run in to get to a reasonable level. And once he was there, he'd had a good season, but he wasn't, you know, the Pedro Costa plug and play immediately fast type of performer. And he hasn't really mentioned it, but I am guessing that the switch to the, to the carbon chassis that obviously tech three gas gas did not have at the end of last season, but the works KTM team did, but now everybody has, I think that must've scrambled something on, on his side of the garage. Uh, he's described it as having lost, basically half the test to sort of weird tweaks and alterations but you know he's never really never really found any semblance of anything in terms of being competitive i would argue you you look at his you know look at his headline lap time and we do know that he did try a time attack and he's on what 58 6 or 7 or something like that he was 58 1 in qualifying last year so that's over half a second in a test where everybody else was breaking pole records for fun and you know really taking in the extra grip we know august fernandez is maybe not the best rider on the grippiest track you know he likes low grip he likes used tires and used tires he's more competitive but this is this is an insane chasm to have right now it's crazy it's it's what 1.3 or 4 to to pedro how, how does that happen he can't so that's that has to be alarming coming into the season 
and the thing that his struggles really highlight to me straight away now I, in some ways I was thinking you know, Fernandez is quite a low profile rider we we don't almost need to talk about him for quite a way into the season relative to all the other people who are who are out there but with the rider market being what it is anyone showing any weakness is straight away going to be thinking oh my gosh there's so many riders out of contract I've got to sort this out because deal's going to be done any second and KTM is a team that has talked about expanding its lineup and seems to have decided it won't or can't now has been linked to Mark Marquez again and again and again has made some noises about not wanting to look outside its current quartet and then seemingly sort of rode back from that in this week alone the difference in tone between the Tech 3 launch and the KTM launch was quite felt to me quite different on that front so Simon I feel like everyone at KTM who isn't Pedro Acosta and Brad Binder should be looking over their shoulder pretty nervously going into this season and not really listening too much to what Pitt Byer is saying because it seems to be quite inconsistent what do you reckon i mean if the if there's one lesson we've learned in recent years about the ktm uh rider market it's that you ignore everything that their management is saying about everything because it generally turns out to be at the very least um mistruths if not straight up lies because they've they've thrown riders repeatedly under the bus um you know even this week again during the team launches something will come to a little bit later they've done it to another rider uh they've promised him something and already have failed to deliver on it it is just what they do um it, it is the fundamental weakness of that team right now that they just seem to be really bad at managing riders it's like like 2016 2017 aprilia all over again <laughs> Except they've got a really good bike now so they can get away with it because there's always someone, you know, there's someone coming through the ranks and there's a fast bike. So you, you riders forgive because they'll take the opportunity. But, you know, we, 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 we talked not that long ago about how Pedro Acosta should feel uncomfortable about going to KTM given that they absolutely screwed one of his best mates in the paddock, uh, Remy Gardner. It, it, it's just the way they do business. Um, I I think that th- there's no one apart from Binder who has a contract and Acosta who you know, has proven already after one test that he is the superstar we thought he was going to be. Those two are safe. But Augusto Fernandez absolutely has to know that he isn't, as does Jack Miller at this point, because you got to think that Acosta is, is eyeing up a factory seat and that's Miller's spot. They're not going to move Miller back to tech three Val's looking at me quizzically but i can't see it i can't see it because ktm generally they use you and they burn you i so i disagree on that particular front i think that is actually a potential explanation i think miller would maybe not accept a move to to tech three gas gas but i think that would be floated and i think that maybe explains what we've all noticed is a certain mismatch of tone between uh Pure Mobility Group Motorsport boss Bit Byer, who of course oversees both the KTM side and the Gas Gas side, and Francesco Guidotti, who is the effectively the team manager of the KTM team. You listen to Bit Byer talk, and the the messaging is pretty clear. However much you believe it or not, that KTM and Gas Gas do not want to be like front runners in the rider market for 2025. That their first priority is just making sure that they can keep the the intact lineup of four riders over four bikes that they're not going to try to rock the boat. Whether you believe it or not, as you know, it's different. And if Augusto Fernandez is actually at the level that he's been at Sepang, they can't keep him, unfortunately. But I don't think he will be. So well, hopefully this has just been a... Yeah. 
So the, the other thing that I am slightly wary about here is that KTM generally struggle in testing. Yeah. And the factory guys weren't exactly lighting things up in this test either. So my, my one sort of thing for, for Fernandez's future is that maybe there's more on show here. Maybe there's more to come than what we saw in this test because they were genuinely testing while everyone else was throwing tires at a sticky track, like you said. And I know they did time attacks and that, but but it wasn't why they were in Sepang, which is, I think that that stands out fairly starkly compared to everyone else. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether that's that's the real you know, truth behind Fernandez's abilities um, or lack of them what, from what we saw. But it is something we've seen with KTM before where they go to Sepang, they struggle, and then they turn up to the start of the season really strong. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think that is something we need to consider, certainly for, for Brad Linder in particular, I think. But I, I don't know, like Augusto, just a bit too far away for even that to be, a, I think, a comfortable explanation. He did not sound comfortable or happy with anything that was going on. Like every every time you saw him and every time you relayed what he looked like and every time I saw what he looked like, you, you, you could tell he's not, not comfortable. But I do think, just going back to that mismatch between Guidotti and Byrer, Byrer's rhetoric that they want to keep things as unchanged as possible and Guidotti's suggestion recently, uh, specifically, he appeared on MotoGP.com and he was talking about how uh, he phrased it, how Jack Miller needs to behave more this season than ever before and he doesn't necessarily mean teamwork he means something else and it's hard to zero in on but basically he was really accentuating it as a season in which Miller needs to really reach a new level of consistency and I don't again I don't want to say application because I don't think the effort is in question but just certain things about how he goes about business and his his mental side that Guidotti is really urging him to improve and he does not sound as convinced in the Miller package as it is right now, as you would take from Byrer's chat about how they don't want to change anything. And I think what, what this sets up to me, and I might be wrong, but there's historical precedent. I think they want to cost on the, on the oranges next year. Um, that's very logical to me. And I think if that does happen, then they would potentially offer Miller the same way they did to Miguel Oliveira when they were dropping him from the lineup to make space for Miller, they offered Miguel Oliveira a Tech 3 deal. He rejected it, but it was on record as being offered. But he just, you know, he couldn't stomach the idea of being demoted effectively. I think that's, like, I, I would not be shocked at all if the same offer is coming Jack Miller's way if the start of the season plays out like testing has looked. In fact, that, that's, that is 100% what I see happening. That's I, th I think that's the likeliest outcome provided performance patterns stay as they are. I could see Miller being pragmatic enough to accept that as well, given that I don't, with no, no offence meant to Jack Miller, who I genuinely think is an excellent rider and deserves his Grand Prix wins. I still really rate Jack Miller while finding him frustrating in execution terms, but I don't see Jack Miller going to another factory now. I think Ducati and KTM is him done in MotoGP factory terms, but he could still make a really good satellite contribution with his experience and, and, and his ability. And he's always come, he's always struck me, like when he settled into being a number two to Peko Banyaya quite readily, well, not readily as such, but more pragmatically than other riders might have done. He kind of knows where he can fit in and wants to keep making a good living in this championship. So I, I could see him saying yes more readily than, say, Oliveira would have done in that circumstance. I, I don't. Um, I see him as someone who has to travel a long way away from home to come racing, who doesn't like being away from Australia, who has a new kid, who will see the offer as a bit of a slight 
and who will find a new home in the World Superbike Paddock where you can immediately go back to winning races. Um, I, I think that's Jack's future. I think I can see him being the successor to Alvaro Bautista in the Factory Ducati World Superbike team and being as well paid as he would be as a satellite MotoGP rider with literally half the number of weekends away from home. And a huge amount of race wins, I would imagine, as well. I can see yeah. him fitting into that very well. But I, I think we should, it is important for us, like this has only been the first preseason test and it is important for us to highlight yeah. that KTM is weird in testing and it is very important for us to 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 point out that again its mantra this year has been that you know they've just been trying bits and pieces and combinations of packages and not really zeroing in on one thing that they're refining which means that the lap times from their riders have been in in a sense obscured especially the peak lap times i i don't know how much of a qualifying run miller has really done like his 58.3 isn't particularly impressive on paper but we also were here last year when, you know, he wasn't too good in testing in Portimao. He looked, he did not impress me at all. And then come first round, he was quick. It was really quick. Um, it is it is a question of how he'll compare to Acosta more than anything, but also, of course, Binder. Binder, I think, has the chance to begin the season in in really good form. Uh, like you, you wouldn't see it maybe from the combined times, right? But um, I, like, I think he didn't do a, a proper qualifying simulation at the right time in at Sepang. I think he missed, you know, the day three window for one reason or another. They just didn't prioritize it. His day two time was really good. If you knock off a few tenths off of that, it's it's serious. It could be really quite something. And especially given what we saw Costa do over one lap, I still expect Binder to have a few tenths more in his pocket. I think he could be really competitive from the get-go in Qatar. Qatar and KTM have such a weird relationship. But, you know, they can be quick there. They've proven it with Binder. It's, I guess it's about consistency of track-to-track performance, but I think they have sort of been talking of themselves as title contenders, and I do see it. Maybe against the Ducati Armada, it's a long shot, but I do see it more than I've ever seen it before. And I should also correct myself, I was looking at the wrong timesheet it was a 57.8 for miller not a 58.3 so better but still you know not in this in the context of this test not amazing so we just mentioned mark marquez very very briefly there as the potential ktm 2025 contender we're not going to talk about mark marquez much in this episode because in the next episode next week we're talking to him mark marquez is going to be our special guest on the next episode of the race motor gp podcast at the start of next week before the qatar test and uh, we're giving you listeners the chance to put some of your questions to him uh, we won't have time for loads we always get inundated when we do listener questions episodes and um Mark won't be able to spare as much time as we can to to answer everything. But um, if you'd like, if you've got a question you'd like to put to Marquez, send it to podcast at the hyphen race.com, either in text form or as a voice note, and we will select a few of the very best to put to Mark when Simon sits down to chat with him in the next few days. And you can hear that episode on all the usual podcast places from the race on Monday next week. So moving on from Marquez and 2024 to the team Marquez left behind, Repsol Honda held its launch this week as well. Now, we're talking about teams and riders with lots to prove in testing. Actually, from everything we've, we've seen so far, Honda is already proving quite a bit post-Marquez and hopefully will continue to do that in Qatar next week. But its launch was extremely striking for one thing, the colour. 
we knew something might be changing on the livery and oh my gosh it really did change Val you were very struck by this and I loved your analogy of how do you put it normally a Repsol Honda livery reveal is like closing your eyes and then revealing your own living room yeah this was not the case this was different wasn't it yeah it was I mean I think there was some dispute over whether it can be described as a shock or not, given the Repsol colors are still there. If you, you know, if you look at the underside of the of the side of the side fairing of the bike, there's your familiar Repsol. It's just it's been moved away, squashed, for, squashed for what everyone reports and or assumes and or both are financial contractual reasons to do with Mark's departure and how much money Repsol is pumping in and how much Honda wants to give him prominence on the bike that has been their bike, Repsol's bike, for years and years and years and years. Uh, it's it, it's an interesting looking machine. It's it is it's like multiple liveries in one. And I don't think it's garish, but it's certainly it's it's a striking thing to look at. If you look at it at the front, you don't recognize it as a Repsol Honda bike at all. Just doesn't just doesn't look like a Repsol Honda bike. Looks like something else entirely. Looks like I don't know a CRT thing or something. Uh, if you look <laughs> at it from the side, what? I don't. No, think you're it's right. a... you're absolutely you're right. You're right. So that's all blacklisted from Honda. I don't think it's Ooh. a bad livery. I quite like it. I think they've done a decent job combining a lot of really visual elements. But I I don't think it looks like what you'd expect a factory bike to look like. I think they're all very primary color, familiar motif in MotoGP right now, say for maybe KTM, and even then I'd say KTM falls under that rule. And this bike looks like, I don't know, if VAR46 if came out with this color scheme, that would make a lot of sense to me. In fact, it is kind of a little bit similar to some of their stuff. It's basically this really weird, but cool, but weird marriage between their Honda Racing Corporation blue and, and red, and it's darker blue, but blue, and the, the Repsol color. And it the thought I had today, and it's such a weird thought to have, but I'll share it anyway. Man, Luca Marini signed up to ride an iconic Repsol colors, and his bike does not look like a Repsol Honda bike. <laughs> so that's kind of, you know, at least Paul Espargo got his chance to have pictures taken of him, on, like on a Repsol, Repsol bike. I don't know. But it's it's a fine livery. I'm not, I'm not, try, I'm not being mean. I'm sorry if I am. I mean, Juan Mir is living out all of his Valentino Rossi fantasies because <laughs> he's somehow ended up riding a navy blue, orange and white Repsol Honda bike with a fluorescent yellow helmet and gloves that looks like 2002 Valentino Rossi. It is uncanny. And you you have to think, like, Marini's looking at the other side of the garage and thinking, damn, I missed a trick here. Like, it could have looked like my big brother and I didn't. But... Um, <laughs> It, it, I like it. Uh, there's a lot going on with it, but I'm I'm really happy they did something different. Um, it, it's got plenty of legacy cues in it as well, not just to the Rossi era, but I think there's, you know, that navy blue is a real do and tribute to celebrate the 30th anniversary of uh, of the Repsol sponsorship. Um, the only bit of it that, that I really don't like is the weird random sections of exposed black carbon fiber that just don't really fit in with the aesthetic of the rest of the bike um it just seems like a random other color combination to add to the mix but uh you know yeah i i, I it's never going to please all of us but um i like it I, I i'm glad it's different i feel sorry for the fuel station owners of spain yeah who will have like a gazillion reps or honda 
you know, like when you go to Repsol fuel station in Spain, you can buy Repsol Honda model bikes, but you can also buy like commemorative tiles and wipes for cleaning the inside of your car and screen wash and all sorts of things that have this bike on it that now isn't this bike. So that's that's going to be a fairly significant shakeup for them. I'm staring at it right now, and I'm I still I, I I don't really care about being mean. I hate it. I've been I. Yesterday, so we were recording this Wednesday morning, so Tuesday morning when it was uh, when it was released, I no- noticed Repsol Honda like tweeting iconic past Repsol bikes. First, I was like, "Oh, if you're going to change delivery, don't be doing that now, because you're just going to draw attention to this icon having vanished." And sure enough, it went from "Here's the iconic Repsol livery" to "Here's a livery that says Repsol's not giving us as much money anymore." It was, uh, it's t- it's too much of a. I, I actually love the HRC colours that Stefan Bradle's been running as the additional rider. I love the red and blue. I think that's really smart. I don't know if I necessarily like Repsol Orange, but it is iconic and it's in your it's in your you're in your brain, and this is just one sort of squished through the other to me. I, I, nah, does doesn't work. I've I've had another look at it and I've I've realised that my entire opposition to it is the black carbon fibre, and if they printed that white, <laughs> it would then look like the best of everything that I wanted this bike to be. So that, that's my yeah. opposition. Um, on the on the bigger picture about the financial commitment, I don't actually think Repsol are giving them any less money. I think the Repsol are giving Mark Marquez less money, and ah. and that's what's changed here. I don't think that there's actually less. There's probably not less investment from them in terms of you know building a bike, but there's there's been all sorts of stories over the years about the things that Repsol Honda have done financially for Mark Marquez to keep him a part of the team, uh, and to keep him even to keep him Spanish resident whenever. Uh, a lot of his colleagues have went to Andorra for tax purposes. There has been a huge financial investment into the Mark Marquez project from Repsol as much as into the Honda project. And I think that, yeah, the, their their bottom line is probably feeling his departure quite nicely. But I think Honda probably aren't any, don't have any less budget to spend on making this bike what it needs to be again. I should say, uh I mean, yeah, the, the livery is very busy, lots of colors, but they are quite lucky that at least Red Bull has followed Marquez out because imagine this livery and also a Red Bull logo somewhere on it. <laughs> the, the, then it would be the worst thing ever put to, to screens. Like this, I I think it's I think it's all right. Yeah, I'm struggling to fit a bull's face on there as well, definitely. Uh, I was really interested in how this launch came across, not just the livery, but the whole vibe of it, because I, I said this to you guys the other day, this, this felt like Honda's first post-Superstar launch in years. And that is a bit unfair to Joanne Mir, who was, of course, 2020 world champion. But in terms of the names Honda's had for so long, I couldn't, I can't remember, you have to go back a long way to get this low-key, a Honda lineup. And it's not just the lineup, it's the expectations. Even when Honda has had two non-title winning riders, which... I can't even think when that happened. Pedroza Hayden, no Hayden, yeah, Pedroza Hayden. Uh, yes, no, before, yeah, in Hayden's champion, yeah, you're right, yeah, in Hayden's championship, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, even then, the bike was competitive enough that you had the expectation that it would be fighting for wins at least, and its riders would be up the front. Now it's got riders who the general public haven't necessarily heard of, and a bike that's not going to be fighting for podiums. So it's got so much less to shout about at a launch, but. It's going. It feels like Honda's going about stuff in the right way. It's not making false claims or big promises. It's been very clear. This is a rebuilding era. It's got a bunch of hardworking riders in to do some rebuilding, and that's what it's cracking on with. And fair play to that in the end. 
I think you're both going to agree with me on that. So I've, I've yeah. uh, made your point. <laughs> yeah. Made your points redundant. We're being with my very monologue. helpful co-hosts by you know you're leading yeah. the silence in for us to go. Yeah, exactly. And we're instead yeah. just nodding. Disagree with me. Come content. on, fight me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, the way you put it actually, Val was. It's not the Honda of it's not the Honda of the past. It's not the Honda of the glory days. But actually, in this circumstance, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Because again, the 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 path they have been walking has stopped working, pretty obviously, and it, it was showing signs of stopping working in like 2019, basically, which was an upsettingly good year in in every sense. But you could you could see the cracks, and you could see how much it depended on one rider, and of course, then. What is it? Murphy's Law? I don't know. I forgot for some reason. But then that rider gets injured and immediately everything goes off the rails and the winds stop coming and the podiums stop coming. And sooner or later you have to, you know, you have to tear it down and start again. And that's, you know, that's why even before the Mark Marquez exit was confirmed, I strongly felt that it could be quite a good thing for Honda in, in many regards. And once it's back to, to goodness, he'll be back. I mean, <laughs> I think that feels very, very likely that he'll be back sooner or later. Alberto Puj, the team boss, was asked during the launch by one of the attendant journalists, uh, is Mark coming back? Uh, in 2025, I think the question was. And Puj was immediately like, I'm going to be frank with you. I don't know. It's, it's a very Alberto Puj answer. I don't think he was ever going to into like PR platitudes, if we're focused on our two current riders, blah, blah, blah. Like the, the best thing you could do is cut it off immediately. I did find it really funny that Joan Mir turned right at him <laughs> and was like looking at his shoulder, like right at Pooja. as Pooja was giving that answer. It gave a very funny visual also because Luca Marini was staring straight on the thousand yard stare that he does sometimes. I'm, I am reading way too much into it, but remember, Luca Marini has a 2025 deal with Honda. John Muir does not. So if Mark Marquez comes in contractually, logically, it would be at the expense of John Muir. But obviously, contractually, MotoGP. I was going to say, yeah. contract, contractually, contractually plus logically, Luca yeah. Marini is riding a Repsol Honda this year. And yeah. yeah, exactly. Which I think he'll do well at. But in, yeah. I mean, in terms of logic and expectations, this exactly. is way off what we were thinking was going to happen until two days before it happened. Yeah. So. But yeah, Mark is that answer suggests to me strongly that mark is coming back it's just a question of the rate of the bike development you know it's either 25 or 27 i guess simon you should ask him <laughs> yeah maybe on the podcast yeah why don't we i mean i i it's a completely unfounded uh baseless conspiracy theory but i am certain that the reason they let him go is because he's got some sort of a handshake agreement that he will honor the missing year from his contract that that he broke at some point in the future um i think it, it, the, it, it's just a given that he's coming back at this point from like everything he says and does um he's talking about it as if oh yeah no yeah that's probably going to happen the team are talking about it as if oh yeah yeah no that's probably going to happen it's wild um we we've heard mark marquez announcing openly at the launch of his new team that he wants to go back to honda in the near future and we've heard the boss of repsol honda announce at the launch of his new riders that he wants to take mark marquez back in the near future like it, it, that's got to be unprecedented but I, I, I think I should say here, and this might be an example that Mark would appreciate, but probably the listeners of the podcast are absolutely not interested in. When Leo Messi was leaving Barcelona, you know, the, the tearful press conference, everybody's super sad. Everybody wanted him to stay, but the money just didn't work out. Everybody was certain he'll be back sooner or later. It's been a few years. He isn't back. 
he has not returned. He is seeing out his career elsewhere. He'll be back in some capacity someday. But again, there is still every chance that just as the timelines were wrong, that they will still never be quite right. That by the time Honda is what it what it wants to be, it either has its new rider to prioritize and build around, or Mark's just done competitively. He's just, you know, he's maybe gotten just that enough bit less competitive to where it doesn't fire him up anymore as much as as much as it needs to for him to really commit himself to MotoGP every single year. Because I think he's always been open that he will not go as long as Valentino Rossi, but he even probably not anywhere near as long as Valentino Rossi. So yeah, I think the intention from everybody sounds like, you know, we'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when. But the the thing is, the where and when might be post-riding career. Disagree. Hard disagree. Yeah. Simon's <laughs> shaking, shaking his head really. Anyway, we're going to settle it. We're gonna, Simon's going to ask Mark. He'll tell us on the podcast. It's sorted. <laughs> Let's go back to another rider who is going to go into the second test with a little bit of work to do. We talked about a lot of Ducatis doing very well in the last podcast, but we didn't talk a lot about Marco Bezecchi at VR46. Now, Bezecchi made a point of staying at VR46 and moving on to a 2023 Ducati when the chance was there for him to go to Pramac and be on 2024. Um, Year-old Ducatis have worked out very well for a lot of people in the past, but are there signs that Bez isn't gelling especially with this one, Val? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, and it's been it's been a fairly consistent thread through all of his media appearances after various testing days. A little bit after Valencia, and definitely at Sepang, that he's just not yet as comfortable with the GP twenty three as good as that bike is, as as he would like to be. And you know the the headline times also reflected. Uh, I mean, his his best time from the test was a fifty fifty seven eight. He can go quicker than that. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, not without relieving, I think, making much in the way of improvements. But he, he's been crashing a fair bit. He's been openly talking about how he just hasn't found his groove with the bike yet. I think his his longer runs also haven't really matched up to the rest of the Ducati gang. Um, one thing that's probably skewing it is obviously Sepang, after all that testing, was, you know, grip paradise. And I think we see the best of Marco Bezzecchi come out when the grip isn't so good. Uh, we, you know, we see his adaptability, his, you know, the the stuff that makes him the darling of Casey Stoner and a lot of other people. You know, that natural <laughs> talent, the the adaptability, the the throttle control, all that kind of stuff. Um, so he's not in trouble, but it's sort of he can't be even not a one trick pony. He can't be limited in his arsenal at all. If he wants to go for the championship this year or anywhere near, he can't be. He has to be good everywhere. And he wasn't really good in the Sepang test. He was, I think, it would be fair to say, objectively worse than Fabio Di Giannantonio. And that that can't fly if you want if you want to be really in the championship mix and if you want to try to give VR thirty six a, a miracle championship that honestly you weren't that far off of last year, and with the extra year of experience. But also increased competition. It's it's always going to be a long shot, but it's it's being made a longer shot right now. Yeah, there was a slight degree to which 
a very slight degree to which Bez and his title bid last year was boosted by other people being injured. But the, that was a pure title bid on merit from a rider and team doing very well. The downside of that is the expectations that then kick on and produce an even better one this season, which is going to be a tall order regardless. And starting a little bit on the wrong foot in testing isn't going isn't to help that. And then of course, there's, there's also the element of what where's Bez going to be in 2025? He was very keen to stick with VR46 and pick comfort over factory spec for this year but that's not gonna be forever is it he has to be looking at a factory seat for 2025 and the reality is that that, that's outside of ducati um you know we've we've already had conversations with ducati management who are hopeful to have peko bagnaya confirmed maybe even before the season starts and the reality is that within the 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 pecking order of likely teammates for him bezeki is fourth because he's behind Bastianini, he's behind Jorge Martin, and he's now behind Marc Marquez as well. Um, I I think increasingly we see a situation where people are going to have to go elsewhere. People are going to have to look at alternatives. Um, Yamaha might be an option, but that depends on what Quadraro does, um, because I think Rins is there for the foreseeable future, at least through this contract cycle. Uh, Aprilia is the one, obviously, that that you know presents the most opportunities, but they're going to take, I think, the 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 loser of the Martin Bastianini row. Um, they're going to take whichever one of those two doesn't get a factory Ducati seat, and then that means that you know Bezeki is looking at what at the Pramac seat he turned down again this year at Ducati, or limited options. I. Now that I've laid, like, I didn't think about this going into answering this question, but I've laid it all out in my head now. And there's this, re- like, there is as realistic a prospect that he ends up remaining at VR46 as he does going to a factory seat for 2025, uh, albeit potentially in a different manufacturer, which could change things up a bit. And that might, you know, provide the impetus for him to stay if VR46 say announced they're going to Yamaha or KTM and that presents a different path forward. But yeah, I, I, I think that his future is the most unknown in terms of rider market questions right now of all of the guys that, you know, are going to be top four, top five of the championship. I think there's a, a couple of extra factors to consider, but we don't yet know how they'll how they'll play out. I mean, what Marco Bezzecchi does have over any other Ducati candidate is that he's Peko Bagnaia's bestest bud. So if, if Ducati decides that it wants to consolidate completely around Vanyaya and cater to, to his every whim, then I think Bezeki gets a boost there. Although at the same time, I don't know if Banyaya wants his bestest ever, but Bezeki in the same team on the same bike, flashing that n- natural talent that sometimes allows him to win races by absurd margins in modern MotoGP. I, I think he'd be fine with it. Pekka Banyaya doesn't seem like the kind of guy who'd... Uh, would stop Marco Bezzecchi from going into the works Ducati team, certainly, but he also does not seem to be the kind of guy who would really try to push him there. He seems to he seems to generally like stability and like established ways of working together without really pulling his weight that much and being ready to take in any teammate, I think. He's just kind of cool like that. The the other thing is I do think I do think he has a really good Aprilia shot, and I just I think back to Remember when Andrea Iannone was banned and Aprilia was in that mad dash to try to figure out any any way to fill fill a seat and going to absolutely like Moto2 riders, MotoGP testers, I think, just really trying to figure something out. I think Marco Bezzecchi was one of the riders that they were 
most interested in. He was still a Moto2 at that point. Oh, yeah. Um, and he, he made a lot of sense then as a young rider to pursue, but if they rated him highly then, I mean, there's they, they I bet they still rate him highly. There's been nothing in MotoGP to rate him less highly. No, you'd, you'd, you'd be more convinced of Marco Mazzecchi. So I think they could make quite a quite a decent lay for him. And I do think that he's justifying a, a factory seat the way he's been in MotoGP. So Aprilia does actually make a lot of sense to me. But it's just, it's a question of how all of that Ducati madness shakes out and whether everybody really is waiting for Ducati to make its mind up one way or the other on who partners Pecco Bagnai in 2025 or whether some of the dominoes will start falling before, like somebody comes to Jorge Martino with a massive mega money offer and then he removes himself from, from consideration there, that kind of thing. It's also for me a question of how mercenary Aprilia are prepared to be and and don't get me wrong I think that they should be prepared to be which is not something I normally advocate for because I I quite like teams that you know look after their riders and look after their their people but <sighs> Maverick Vinales and Alicia Spagaro aren't doing it right now they, they've taken that bike to a point and it's time for new blood and I I I know Espagaro has talked to us actually about retirement potentially being in the cards and then dialed it back shortly after with a run of good form. But, you know, for me, I think Aprilia need to make him a big money offer to become their test rider and lifelong ambassador. And then really they need to look elsewhere on the other side of the box as well, because Vinales is, it's, it's just not coming, is it? He He's still effectively in the same point he was in 18 months ago with that bike where it's just almost close enough but not good enough well this this completes my list of riders and teams with things to sort out in the final test and that is basically three quarters of the aprilia lineup yeah we, we highlighted the spagaro as a, a very impressive performer in the first test and frankly he needs to be given lifelong mayorship of noale and allowed to run the town and have a mansion there and whatever lots of bikes um but yeah, he's he's given so much to that project and made it made such a big contribution to turning it from this laughing stock that we used to look at going through rider after rider and scrabbling for drug ban replacements to this really impressive front running team against the resources odds. But yeah, time to get a new talisman in to actually make this bike a title contender. There's there's people who could fill that role on the market, and that means that the other three riders, Vinales, Ralph Fernandez, and Miguel Oliveira. They really go into the season with quite a lot of pressure to prove that they should still be part of Aprilia long term. Can you imagine going into the 2027 MotoGP season with a new set of rules and a bike developed by Enea Bastinini and Marco Bezzecchi? They would start the season as genuine title contenders. Like that would be such a strong outfit with a you know with a bike that is going to close the gap to Ducati dramatically. Um, that would be a really good place to be. And honestly, I think that as we go into this next contract block um, for 25 and 26, people, factories are going to be looking to the road change in 2027 and thinking at that point, you know what, we need a rider that can develop a bike. We need someone who is going to help build likely our 850 to replace the 1,000 cc's. Um, and, and that's going to be a factor. That, that for me, should absolutely be a factor in Aprilia wanting to have... Uh, Alicia Spagaro on a full-time testing contract yeah. for two years yeah. behind the scenes. Um, but it should also be a factor in, in factories that you know want to start the season the way that Honda did with the V5 in 2002. We've heard from Massimo Rivalo also recently, and he's he sort of struck a similar sort of line to Pitbirer, maybe slightly less 
committed to stability, but still emphasizing lineup stability and the previous commitment to its to its four established riders. I think I, I don't know if that commitment survives first contact with the the rider market frenzy, <laughs> and I especially like all the people we've talked about. They are very attractive options. I should also mention. I think Fabio Quartararo is on the market. So if you can get Fabio Quartararo somehow, if you can convince Fabio Quartararo that, you know, yes, this isn't the best bike in MotoGP, but it can be enough for you. I mean, you, you've you made it. I, I I don't know. This might be a, a long shot, but we've, we've heard very, like in recent days, uh, our colleagues at motorsport.com reported, uh, Fabio, they had an interview with Fabio Quartararo and he said that he's had exploratory initial contacts with other MotoGP factories, what factories might that be if not Aprilia? And if, if Aprilia can make it, like, I, I think they're ideal. I think what I would do is I would maybe talk to Aleish about the retirement test role thing and consider replacing him with Marco Bezzecchi. Or if that doesn't work, consider replacing Marek Vinales with Marco Bezzecchi, but keep Vinales otherwise. But if you could get Fabio Quartararo, then that overrides everything. I think he is still potentially the one rider on the MotoGP grid who you can bet on overcoming not the best bike, but a bike that's just good enough to scratch and claw his way to a to a fairy tale title for Aprilia. He also might get immediately really mad by <laughs> anything, about anything. And it might be it might end up being annoying, but it might end up being the best thing ever. Yeah, he'll still ride really fast while he's doing that. So you you, know, you can cope you can cope with that. I mean, it's worth it's worth saying that the Aprilia is not the best bike on the MotoGP grid, but it's probably the second best, as opposed to the Yamaha that's fourth in that rankings by a long yeah. way. You know, it's second or, or third. It's second or third. third. It's it's Yamaha close to the it's fourth. close to the KTM, but then there's a big drop to Honda and Yamaha. So it, it, even to go from a decent, you know, even to go from what he's got now to go to that bike, he's going to see a huge step forward you know it's it's the um it's the moving from from economy to business class as opposed to the extra little bump from business to first so here, here's what i do if I'm, i fly a lot i use aircraft analogies <laughs> of course you would uh here's here's what i do if i'm massimo Revola, right it's qatar it's friday evening uh i make sure that after fabio Quartararo qualifies 14th my face is the first he first face he sees and maybe with a picture of the aprilia <laughs> Or whatever in my hand, make sure that happens. No, 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 no. You forget that Qatar is a lit schedule. What he's doing right now is he's changing his hotel booking to be in Quadraro's hotel so that they can bump into <laughs> each other at breakfast on Saturday morning. <laughs> Just, you know, at the buffet next to the yeah. automatic pancake maker machine. Ah, Fabio, good morning. Yeah. yeah. And Fabio <laughs> won't have slept at all. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love how we started today thinking we'd talk about riders with things to prove in a test, and then we've just gone straight full on twenty twenty five rider market for basically the whole episode. And we're good. the worst. Good. No, I don't care. I used to ban you from doing this when we had races to talk about, but we're in twenty twenty four now. The deals are going to be done. The conversations are happening. Yeah, what is it? Eighteen out of twenty two riders out of contract. Or half the satellite teams not with a proper manufacturer contract for next year yet. Everything. Or, ho- or nothing hopefully not nothing we like things changing everything could change so that's why when we start talking about test performances test moods and that sort of thing everything plays into who's going to have a job where next season and um, I'm not going to make no apologies for that I love it 
Thank you, Val. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, listeners, for your company on this one. Just a reminder, we have Mark Marquez as our special guest on next week's first of two episodes. Uh, one will be about the test on Tuesday as well. Um, if you've got a question for Mark, we will slip a few in of yours as well. So email it to podcast at the-race.com, either in text or voice note form, and we will squeeze in a couple of the best, we promise. Um, we really, really look forward to being back in your ears at the start of next week on Monday with our exclusive chat with Mark Marquez. Speak to you then. The Athletic.